Heavenly Father, we do thank you as always for your, your loving care for each of us and for your presence among us. And help us, Father, direct our attention toward you and away from the distractions of our lives. You've brought us here, Father, for a purpose. And may, many of us, Father, had this appointment on our calendars and we keep it routinely without much thought. Others of us, perhaps this was a choice we made tonight. We weren't even sure if we would be here, Father, but something caused us to make the decision. And it really doesn't matter how we got here, Father, for you knew we would be here and you had that plan. A plan, Father, that that you orchestrated so that as we come into this room tonight, there's something you've prepared through the word of God. A word that you've given me, perhaps something for them that I don't even understand that they need to hear. That's the mystery of what you do, Father, as you speak through the mouths of men and women who teach your word. And we don't have the, the knowledge you have, Father. We don't have the strength, the wisdom, the omniscience, any of those things, Father. What, what we give to you is diligence and effort and what little bit of, of skill we have. And, Father, you take that and you magnify it so that your skill and wisdom and strength is evident. We want to see that here tonight, Father. We want to see your strength and how you give us courage to do as we hear. And we want to hear your wisdom, Father, so that the, the difficulties of our lives, the mysteries of our lives, the challenges we face and who we are and what we do and how we think, and how we face the trials of life, Father, we want to have that wisdom so we can do better in those moments. And, Father, we want to have the strength of courage to speak boldly what we hear. And you can do that in us if you choose to. We ask, Father, that you do that. And... Uh, that tonight would, would be evidently something that you created for our sake. Don't let us miss it, Father. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have covered Samuel's birth. We covered his arrival in Eli's family. And now the story is going to turn to Samuel's call to become a prophet who serves the Lord. Of course, you already know that Hannah had dedicated Samuel to the Lord. So we know he's going to have a purpose in God's economy. And we know why she made that vow, certainly. But what of Samuel's own perspective on his own circumstances? You might wonder how he felt about being, quote, dumped at the footsteps of Eli and at the tabernacle by his own parents. And we know he saw them periodically. We saw that last week. And he knows that his own mother comes every year or so and gives him a new robe. I mean, this is not like he is an orphan without knowledge of his parents. So you wonder, as he's now been serving the tabernacle, what he's thinking about why he's there and not with his own family. And as was evident last week, as we ended chapter two, we heard that he had been serving the Lord before Eli in the tabernacle. So he knows his role. But what does all of this mean to a young boy? And at some point, the true purpose in his dedication has to become real for him. It's one thing for his mother to say what he will do, but it's an altogether different thing for him to agree with it himself and to decide for himself what he's going to do. And now the question becomes, how did Eli move from being a son, a young child that his mother dedicated to the Lord, to being a man who himself had that calling and recognized it? That's chapter three. And so a day has come for Eli to receive a revelation from the Lord. Chapter three is Samuel's call and his first assignment. His first prophecy from God. Once again, that prophecy will center on Eli's family. So we'll begin now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Well, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. It happened at that time, as Eli was lying down in his place, now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out, 
And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, that the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. And so the start of Samuel's ministry is at the same time both humorous and profound. First, we're told again that Samuel's ministering to the Lord before Eli, and the Hebrew word for boy in verse 1 is a common word that generally refers to a young man, not a young child, but someone who is approaching manhood. In fact, Josephus writes that Samuel was 12 years old at this moment. Take it for what it's worth. So in other words, whatever age he was, he's young, but he is reaching the point where as an adult, he will have choices and he'll have to make decisions. Yet until this point, we're told, Samuel had not heard from the Lord personally. We're told he was ministering to the Lord, certainly. So clearly the young man was intent on becoming a servant of the Lord, or at least acting as such for now. But until the Lord revealed himself to Samuel, his service was merely an aspiration. He was, for all intents and purposes, in service to fulfill a calling that had been assigned to him by his parents. But if Samuel's service is going to become genuine, then it requires that he himself have a call from the Lord that he recognizes and responds to. So that unless and until the Lord called Samuel and anointed him, his service could never have served the purposes God had for him. He could never truly fulfill any service to the Lord. His situation would have been something much like that of a child that had been baptized as an infant by their parents. And then later, as a child, told to go to church with the family every Sunday. And that same child then adopts rituals and patterns of family life, maybe saying their prayers at night or before a meal or knowing Bible stories by heart from what they've been taught as a child. And not to underemphasize the importance of them, but merely to acknowledge the reality of what that involves. It's merely a child obeying parents at the end of the day. But until the Lord places a call on that child's heart, the acts of piety can never rise above works of ritual and mere obedience to parents. There has to be a moment when the Lord reveals himself to such a person, and in that moment, that heart is quickened to know and follow the living God. And those of us in here who know the Lord by faith have all gone through that moment in our own walk, whether as a child or an adult, but there had to be the moment as God appointed. So now in this chapter, you see the moment where the Lord is ready to give Samuel a call as a prophet and a man who will become the one who hears the voice of the Lord, relates it to others from what he learns from the Lord, a man who has a purpose in life to serve the Lord. But all of that is predicated on knowing the Lord. Notice at the end of verse one, we're told that this is a time in which men did not routinely hear from the Lord. Visions from the Lord were not absent, but they were not common. They were not routine. They were rare, which means men in this day were living with only the law and the book of Joshua. If you look historically at when those books were authored in time, at this point in human history, only six books, as we call them, books of Scripture, existed. The first five books of the Bible plus Joshua, which is the sixth. Beyond that, the Lord had only revealed his word in moments through judges for specific purposes. So it has been roughly 300 years 
since the Lord was routinely speaking through prophets. Almost as long as the interval between the Old and the New Testament prophets from Malachi to Jesus or from Malachi to John the Baptist more specifically. So in this period now you have Samuel about to become the one who who breaks this cycle and begins another cycle in which prophets are going to become common. He's going to call Samuel as a prophet. And friends, being a prophet is a thankless, difficult job and always has been. You have to respond to the word of the Lord no matter when he calls, no matter what you're doing. Think about Jonah, for example. You know, you're on one path in life. Suddenly you've got an entirely different mission that's going to move you, you know, miles from where you live and interrupt your entire walk of life. That was not uncommon for prophets. Isaiah was told to walk around literally naked for three years. For three years, the man wore no clothing as a testimony to Israel for what God was planning to do to the people. I mean, these are the kinds of things that come with the job. You can't take a day off. You can't tell the Lord, you know what, I'm busy. I'll get that word later. You have to be willing to tell people things they don't want to hear. And you have to place your allegiance to the Lord above human relationships, being willing to leave behind family and friends if that's required. Remember that few prophets in the scriptures live out their lives naturally. Very few. Most of them are martyred. That comes with the job quite often as well. Jesus said himself, right, it's not right that a prophet should die outside of Jerusalem. That was the common place you died as a prophet. So given that Samuel is so young, it would make some sense that when the Lord is ready to call him into the mission of prophet, that he's going to have to do it in such a way that it gives Samuel an opportunity to see what a prophet is all about and the tasks that it involves and the trials that will come with it. And here you see God giving him a taste of that, even as he begins the call. Eli, we're told, is laying down in his bed, which was located in the temple courtyard. Now, Eli's the high priest. And as a high priest, he essentially lived in the tabernacle compound because that was his home. This is long before the days when the high priests became positions of riches and wealth and honor to the extent that they had these palaces of their own. And that's not true yet for a high priest. These guys aren't quite that special. I mean, as evidenced by the fact that someone like a Hannah could come up and have a nice conversation with Eli at the tabernacle when she wanted to. In this day, the job was more like a fireman. You just lived in the firehouse where you served on a regular basis. Meanwhile, Samuel, we're told, is also sleeping in the tabernacle, probably also in the courtyard. In verse three, it says Samuel is in the temple. But the Hebrew word for temple is hekal, which literally means court. So he's sleeping in the court. He's sleeping somewhere out there. By the way, if you if you thought when it said temple that it meant he was standing like in the holy place, sleeping inside the tent. Remember, no one ever lies down in there. You have to stand at all times. So he never would have gone in there and slept. So he's sleeping somewhere in the courtyard. When he sleeps, now to the point of the story, the Lord calls Samuel. We don't know what the call was like, but it certainly appears to have been an audible voice, if not out loud in the air, at least in his head. And Samuel responds as if it's such, right? He hears somebody calling him and his only expectation is to assume it must be Eli, who else would have been calling him in the courtyard. So notice his first response is to say, here I am. But he gets no further response after that. So he gets up, assuming that Eli's just waiting for him to show up and he finds Eli. And then Eli's sleeping. And of course, he has to wake up the old man. And the old man says, I didn't wake, call you. Go back to sleep. Natural, right? Everything to this point fits. It's all human nature, but it's also a bit comical, right? And as you see the Lord calling Samuel and Samuel making the mistake of thinking that it was Eli and so on, this entire thing happens a second time. And that just increases the comic quality of it all. And as you're laughing at it, I want you to stop and think about it for a minute and ask yourself, why does the Lord let this develop? Because notice in the first encounter, Samuel immediately responded, here I am. Right from where he was lying. 
If the Lord had wanted to initiate a conversation with Samuel, he would simply have started it right then and there at that moment. There'd have been no need for the Lord to wait for Samuel to get impatient, stand up, go find Eli, interrupt the man and all the rest. That, that all didn't naturally happen. That happened because the Lord didn't say anything after Samuel spoke. If the Lord had wanted to, he could have avoided any possibility of mistaken identity. So the conclusion we have to make is that the Lord withheld any further commentary so as to provoke this very scene. And not just once, mind you, but three times this plays out. So that begs the big question. What's the Lord up to in this? Why is he allowing this? It's not just for the sake of humor. Notice only after Samuel has encountered Eli and returns back to his place, does the Lord initiate a second call. He waits through that whole process before he speaks again. So this is a puzzle we want to try to solve. Clearly, he's orchestrating it. And so the question is, can we make some conclusion here about what the Lord is trying to teach Samuel and and us by this kind of, of repetition? Well, think about a few things first. Remember, Samuel is about to receive his call to serve the Lord. That's what this moment is all about. And this call is going to lead Samuel to representing the Lord to the people of God as a prophet. And with that role will require that he bring the word of the Lord. We know that. And as such, he will no longer answer to the authority of an earthly priest like Eli. He's going to answer to the Lord. And the Lord wants Samuel, I would imagine, to understand that his instructions, the Lord's instructions are going to come from a God who will elect to reveal himself only to Samuel. Not all men will hear what Samuel's going to hear. Not even the high priest of Israel is going to hear what the Lord is going to reveal alone to Samuel. So what better way to make that clear than to demonstrate to Samuel that no one else is hearing this except you. And so in this perfect pattern of three, the Lord calls Samuel, lets Samuel discover no one else is hearing this, only you. And yet you didn't imagine it. It happens again. And then a third time. And of course, after the third time, we're going to see that Eli will give him the proper advice. All of this, I think, is to teach Samuel that he alone has been commissioned by the Lord for this special role, and it's not a common role. Notice in verse 7, we're told that Samuel did not yet know the Lord and had not yet heard the word of the Lord, not yet had it revealed to him. And this phrase raises some interesting questions by itself. Does the comment simply mean Samuel had not yet had a personal encounter with the Lord of the type that he's now having? Well, that's a common interpretation, but I would argue that that interpretation makes no sense in light of what's going on around it. In fact, the entire statement is completely unnecessary. Verse 7 would be completely unnecessary if its only point is to say, this is the first time this has ever happened to Samuel. Self-evidently, this is the first time this has ever happened to Samuel. That's why it's being recorded. Obviously, he's never heard from the Lord yet. That's the whole point of chapter 3. So why would you have to spell it out in one verse? Another possibility in what that verse means is that this is the moment that the Lord reveals himself to Samuel's heart, thus bringing Samuel saving faith. In this interpretation, we would view Samuel's earlier dedication in the tabernacle as simply service rendered as a dutiful son. He's serving the ritual of the law, not actually having uh, knowledge of the reality of the living God. And under those circumstances, then Samuel would be very much like the millions and millions of men and women who have attended churches of one kind or another, and they have genuflected and they have prayed and they have kneeled and they have chanted on cue and they have done all the things they're told to do, but they have no personal relationship with the Lord, which describes me at a point in my life and many others around me in my life still today. Perhaps then this is the moment of Samuel's calling into faith. 
And that's my perspective. A moment like the one Paul had on the road to Damascus. In fact, a, a short comparison between Samuel here and Paul in that experience develops this thinking even further. Consider for a moment Paul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he put it. He was the preeminent student in Judaism. His piety would have put even Samuel to shame. From an external point of view, everyone would have been able to say that is a man who must be close to God. And yet it couldn't have been further from the truth. And yet Paul, not knowing the Lord in his heart, it required something for Paul to get past that barrier. What did it require? It required an encounter with the word. On the road to Damascus, in Paul's case, and remember, when Paul received his call, he responded to a voice. And yet he wasn't even sure who that voice was at first. But it was that moment that the Lord revealed himself to a man who was supposedly serving God all his life. And what did it take to bring both Paul and Samuel into the light, out of ritual and into relationship, out of a potential for serving the Lord and an aptitude for it into the reality of it? Well, what did verse seven say? He had not yet had a revelation of God's word. It requires the word of God to reveal the truth of God to us. In Paul's day, the word had already become flesh. And so for Paul, the exposure to the word came in the person of the risen Lord himself. But in Samuel's day, the Lord was still yet to become flesh. And instead, he was known as what? The angel of the Lord. And Samuel is going to have an encounter with the angel of the Lord in this moment. Verse eight. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, go lie down and it shall be if he calls you that you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day, I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I've told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So here we have the third occasion. The Lord calls Samuel once more. Samuel goes to Eli. And at this point, Samuel must have thought Eli was playing a trick on him or so you might imagine. Right. After three in a row, you wonder what's going on. We should note, though, that Samuel's got this patient heart of service. Do you see it? Who among us would show this much patience under the same circumstances? Remember, it's one thing to have someone calling you in the middle of the day. You're getting out of bed. This is in the middle of the night and you're getting up each time. Wouldn't you show some frustration at this point? Wouldn't you just at the third time just lay in your bed and say, OK, cut it out. You, you know, fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. You know, I'm not getting up again. Right here. You see a heart of service. It doesn't matter how many times. This happens. If Eli calls, I go and I serve him, whatever is required. He's so dedicated to service that he gets up each and every time he hears a voice and returns to Eli without complaint. And Eli, I assume, must have known Samuel's heart for service because every time he gets woken up by this boy, he takes time not to chastise him, it would seem, but to simply instruct the boy. And he knows the boy's not playing around here. That's not the style of what you'd expect. So eventually it comes, he comes to realize there's something going on here as well. Maybe by the spirit, maybe just by his own knowledge, but he comes to this conclusion that it is the Lord. 
And given how rare it was, we're told, for the Lord to speak to people in this time, in this age, you have to wonder if Eli himself wasn't a bit shocked at the prospect that that's actually happening right now with this young boy. 300 years with no one, now you're hearing from the Lord? This is interesting. So Eli gives him the instructions. He tells Samuel, go back, lay down. This time when you hear the voice, don't come back to me. Just ask the voice what it wants. Say, Lord, here I am. And it almost seems like Eli's been there before. Like these are instructions he's seen followed, maybe. It's not, it's not clear to me why he would know to do this, except that the Lord may have told him. Once again, now Samuel has this encounter with the word of the Lord. We might stop here and say, well, why didn't the Lord just begin with his message in the first encounter again? Why did he make these extra steps? Well, we've already said it so that Samuel could appreciate that he's hearing something uniquely appointed to himself. But there's another aspect to this pattern that's important to note. This call and response pattern is another important detail because Samuel needed to learn the Lord's call and recognize it. Not because the Lord's incapable of making himself clear, mind you, but because it is the Lord's intent on training a servant to know him intimately and so that he will be ready for these moments in the future. That may be another aspect of this. Samuel didn't know the Lord, but now the time has come. And that process of coming to know the Lord begins with a call from the Lord to those whom the Lord selects to hear it. So as we said in verse 7, the time came for Samuel to know the Lord. And then once that time came, the word of God opens the ears and calls the and the called will hear and the called will respond. And so Samuel awaits with ready ears. And only when he hears the call, can he respond? The call must precede the response. And then in the response, the Lord reveals himself. And this is exactly what Paul says in a much pithier way in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Think through that statement just for a moment. Faith comes from hearing. And that's not a reference to the ear. That's a reference to the heart. And how does the heart hear? How does the heart perceive the thing that calls us into faith? Well, it is made able to hear by the word of Christ. In other words, it's not so much as to say that there was a time when someone had to read you the Bible in order for you to have faith. That's certainly one way in which it happens. But this is speaking at a more fundamental level. It's not talking about sound waves hitting the ear from things read out of the word of God. It's talking about faith comes from a supernatural hearing, an ability to perceive truth made possible by the word of Christ in our hearts, making hearing possible, making a response possible. Clearly, that happens in a mechanical way. We have to learn it somehow. It's not that we all get a light on the road to Damascus. That much is true. But that begs a bigger question. And the bigger question is, lots of people hear it. Why do some respond to it? Why do others not? Because of this fundamental issue of making hearing possible, which alone is a sovereign act of the will of God. So at this point, the Lord gives Samuel his first word from the Lord. And the Lord's first words to Samuel are so unlike what Hollywood would portray such a moment to be like. You ever seen those movies, of course, where someone is portrayed as God, usually as Morgan Freeman. And and in those encounters, the one who is being given this encounter with God gets the point somewhere along the path. Oh, I'm, I'm actually talking to God. And of course, then they have to have that introductory conversation. Yes, I'm God. Well, what do you do all day? Well, this is what I do. You know, like two people who meet at a bus stop, right? which is so unlike what real life is when you read it in the Bible. There's no, hello, Samuel, I'm the Lord, how are you? And Samuel, like, I've been wondering about you, it's nice to finally meet you. No. In fact, if you remember in Acts, when Paul meets the Lord on the road, Jesus doesn't make any introduction either, does he? 
When the Lord steps into our lives and calls us into a relationship with him, he needs no introduction. You're past that point. At the point you're having revelation from God, that that is by the word of Christ in the way the book gives it to us now or in the way Samuel and Paul received it in their day, self-evidently God is I am. There's no need to explain himself. We get it already. Now we're just trying to grasp it. His revelation of himself is sufficient to bring us into the family of God. As Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God shines, metaphorically, light into our hearts so that we will have the knowledge of himself so that at the point that we're able to have a conversing with him, so to speak, through prayer or in other forms, we're already in the relationship. It's the nature of the problem. You can't talk to a God you don't know. To know him is to already have a relationship with him. So Samuel has had the light of Christ shined into his heart. Now he's in a relationship with the living God. Since that relationship is established by God's grace, it's time to get down to business. And once you enter into a relationship with the Lord, the expectation is that you immediately begin to serve him, even as you grow in the grace and knowledge of him. As Jesus said to Peter and Andrew in Matthew 4.18, Now Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. No record there of a little bit of debate and, or recruiting. He just said, do it. So for Samuel, the first assignment is not a pleasant one. The Lord tells Samuel he's prepared to do something so remarkable in Israel that people who hear it will be amazed. Their ears will just will ring as it is. The phrase is more than just hyperbola. It's a marker. This this phrase that you see in the text, I think it's tingle. Is that right? Tingle in English. That word tingle in the Hebrew word that's behind it is a marker to indicate that this is news that the Lord is preparing to bring that's important. In other words, this phrase, tingling ears, only appears twice in the Bible. Here and at another point in Israel's history. And the first point here and the second point later are bookends to a certain period in Israel's history, a very specific one. What is that period? Well, we know that what is about to be revealed relates to Eli's family. We have already heard that. So that's certainly going to be part of the revelation. But what God is alluding to here goes far beyond what's going to happen to Eli. The Lord's looking beyond this single moment. He's referring to the revelation that a monarchy will be established in Israel and that a monarchy will come to an end. Human monarchy will come to an end. How do I know that? Well, this comment about ears tingling occurs elsewhere, only one other place in the Bible. It's in 2 Kings 21 and Jeremiah 19. There are two locations, but to the same moment, to the same experience. Let me read you the one out of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 19, 1 through 6. Thus says the Lord, go and buy a potter's earthen jar and take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests. Then go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnon, which is by the entrance of the pot shared gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you and say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I'm about to bring a calamity upon this place at which the ears of everyone that hears it will tingle because they have forsaken me. And have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah have ever known because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent 
and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing of which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Himmon, but rather the Valley of Slaughter. And I've just read a section of it. There's another section in Second Kings 21. It speaks of the same moment. And what the Lord has just declared in this passage, more or less, there's more detail around it if you want to go look. But what he's declared here is the end of the Jewish monarchy. The end. Just as it began with Samuel, who anoints the first king, and his entry into that time of service was with ears tingling concerning the news of Eli and what would follow, so it will be when the ears are shocked of Israel by the revelation that Israel will cease having a king. You notice in that passage I read a couple of references to the kings of Judah, the kings of Judah. There's this whole concern that men in the role of king have blown it and big time sacrificing their children on fire. And so the Lord says, that's it. Until Messiah comes, there will be no king in Israel. And there has never been since God removed the kings of Israel. The ones who served in a counterfeit form, men like Antiochus of the Greeks or Herod, who came in later. Herod was an Idomean. He was a descendant of Esau. He was not a Jew. You have these men who have usurped the throne and claimed to be kings of Israel, but I didn't make them so any more than I'm a Girl Scout if I call myself one. It doesn't prove that you are. And those were ones who were trying to have the throne but didn't have any rights to it. There was no God-appointed king in Israel after they were removed entirely in their captivity. And so the Lord is saying here to Eli, I'm about to use you in a very great way for something that's going to be marvelous and amazing to the nation. That is, you're going to begin the monarchy, among other things. And then at later points, he uses the same phrase to say time's up for that monarchy. So the Lord's announcement is an allusion to these greater things and to specific things, of course, concerning Eli. The Lord tells Samuel that Eli is going to get this personal message from him that he and his sons are going to be cut off. Notice verse 12. The Lord says, everything I've already spoken to Eli is going to happen. So that means this is not news for Eli. The Lord's just confirming what he had been told to the earlier prophet that we read about. So he simply repeats here that Eli's house will have no opportunity for atonement for their sins. They will have a curse placed on them. Now, here's a question. Why does the Lord need Samuel to deliver a confirmation to a message that he already knows? What's the point in repeating it? In other words, Eli already understands these things. Moreover, if the Lord really just wanted to make sure Eli was double sure about what was coming, he could have just spoken to Eli directly or given it to him through another of these random prophets. Why does Samuel have to relay this confirmation? The answer has little to do with Eli, but it has everything to do with Samuel. This is Samuel's opportunity to practice delivering bad news to people who won't like to hear it, because that goes with the territory of being a prophet. This will take courage. It's going to teach him a lesson about serving God rather than pleasing men. When the Lord says, speak, we speak. And whatever response the word of the Lord generates in those that hear it, that is the intended reaction that the Lord anticipated. You can't control it. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to just deliver a message. You're not supposed to soften it, soft pedal it, step around it, ignore parts of it, pick and choose. I mean, those are the things we do because we care more about how people receive it than we care about the truth of it itself. Believers today are not typically arrested at night with a word from the Lord like you see happening here with Samuel, of course, because Hebrews tells us that the counsel of the Lord is complete now in the Bible, that though he spoke in portions and in many ways to the fathers and the prophets in these last days, he's spoken to us only through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So. The truth of what we now have from God is sufficient and complete in Scripture. I don't need a, a voice from the Lord. 
But we still have the same challenge as Samuel is being given here, which is share what you have from the word from the Lord without soft peddling it, without softening the message or, or keeping things from people. Because, friends, there are a lot of places in Scripture that people you might want to share it with won't like what you give them. There's a lot of things in the Bible that won't please the average person. For example, people don't like to hear about the Bible when it talks about sin. That's never going to change. Right. Especially sin that our society has embraced and determined is acceptable. They're not going to like to hear anything different than that. People aren't going to like to hear that hell is a real place and that there are real people going to this real place when they die in their sins. People aren't going to like to know that they're not okay the way they are, that Scripture calls for them to repent from who they are naturally. Those are not messages that are ever going to be popular, but they are replete in the Scriptures. The messages and many more truths like that in the Word have been given to us so that we would share them as they are. Not insensitively, of course, but neither should we change it so that people will like it. The same word, by the way, that condemns sin also proclaims the good news that we can be saved from it. The same word that speaks of hell also promises heaven. The same word that convicts also saves. So it's not as though it's all bad news. The problem is if you only give the half that you think sounds good, you're selling a product no one thinks they need. And no one buys something they don't need. And of course, we're speaking here in human terms about about these matters. But still, the logic holds, right? God has prepared all of this news in the Bible so that people have a full appreciation for why they need what he's offering in the gospel. And we need to learn the lesson that the Lord's teaching to Samuel here. We take what the Lord gives us and we share it without editing and also without fear because the Lord in his wisdom has determined these are the right words. This is the right message. It's self-evident that the Lord of the universe, the creator and the author of all things, if he had had a different and better way to say what needed to be said, that would be what we have in our Bible, right? What we have is by definition the best. One of the reasons why I shy away from topical study and prefer verse by verse is that topical study is simply me taking the thoughts of the Bible and rearranging them in my own words. But I like the ones that God already used. I don't need to change them and hopefully I'm true to what they say and that's the intent of teaching the Bible properly. We do not as Christians have liberty to change or hide what's in the Word of God. Paul made a point at the end of his ministry to point out to the church in Ephesus that he did not fail to give them the whole counsel of God's word. Of all the things Paul could have rested on at the end of his long life of service as his his main achievement in his walk and in his ministry, the main thing he wanted to emphasize was that he gave them everything he had been given from the Lord. He held nothing back. So this is the situation Samuel faced now. Does he dare to share this news with his surrogate father, essentially, and the high priest of Israel, for that matter? Or does he hold it back? Well, his first answer to that question is the wrong one. Also, keep in mind, he's about 12 years old. We've got to give him every benefit of the doubt we can here, right? He's a young boy. His father is obviously an old man, and old men are to be greatly respected in the culture, as they should be. And then you have Eli's sons, who we already know are fully grown and ruthless. Uh, who's to know what their reaction will be when they hear they're due for death? There's real jeopardy potentially here for this young boy. I'm sure he's thinking that. So this is a true test of his heart. Is he going to speak the word of the Lord without concern for personal consequences or not? That's the test for every prophet, by the way. But we're going to get a chance to see how the Lord trains him for this difficult assignment. So initially he's hesitant. Verse 15. So Samuel lay down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. And as I said, who can blame him? But that's not the passing of the test, right? Verse 16. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. 
And he said, here I am. He said, what is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Smartly, Samuel decides that he's probably not going to go wake up Eli another time to give him that news. Better to save this news till morning, right? So he wisely goes back to bed. When he does wake up in the morning, he isn't feeling much like sharing it either. So then he goes about his work. He opens up the tabernacle. He begins his duty and so on. Naturally, Eli's looking for the kid because he remembers what happened last night. And he says, "Okay, it's time for you to tell me what you heard. And you can see in all of this a measure of God's grace. Isn't it just like God to make sure we don't mess up at the end of the process that he's given us to follow? Right. In other words, he knows that the measure of success here is that Samuel would reveal everything and he senses Samuel's reluctance. So he makes sure that Samuel gets put into a position where he has no hope but to do the right thing. That's grace, friends. That's that's God going the extra step to help us do the right thing. So he's confronted by Sam, uh, by Eli. And with that confrontation, then Samuel has little choice now but to obey. But isn't it interesting? He wouldn't do it with the Lord's authority. But when a man tells him what to do, he would do it because he's basically obeying a man while he's doing this. Now, that's not to convict him here. It's simply to point out that sometimes it's it's funny how we will give more credit to the threat or, of authority in a human way than we will to the real authority, which is God. But nonetheless, God uses whatever he has to. And he brings Samuel into obedience. And so he shares this news. And in fact, Eli says something very interesting in order to get the news out of him. Eli pronounces his own prophecy on Samuel. Not that it's spoken in those terms, but it really is such. He says, if Samuel isn't willing to share the word that the Lord gave him, then the things God proclaimed would come upon Samuel, which is actually true. If a prophet had failed to do the work that God had called the prophet to do, then that prophet would have been put to death. That prophet would not be able to serve the Lord. And so clearly, Eli was giving to Samuel a threat that was intended to get something out of Samuel, but indirectly or otherwise, he was pronouncing the truth. That this is, the, this is what you have, Samuel, facing you. Serve the Lord or pay the consequences. And those consequences would be severe. So Eli could have just sensed that Samuel must have been given bad news, otherwise he would have been more willing to share it. And so now we really want, you know how it is when somebody's indicating they got bad news, now you really got to know what they're talking about? Well, that's what I think must have been going on. Anyway, Samuel shares the news, just as he's supposed to, and with no holding back, we're told. And as I said last week, when a man hears that the Lord is prepared to take the lives of his sons, much like with David, we said last week, would you not expect that person to react with some concern, some passion, some attempt to change the Lord's mind as David was trying to do? But Eli, it just appears, is completely indifferent. Or maybe just resigned to what's coming. I don't know. But at the very least, you see no indication of repentance in Eli's heart. And we're told he's a man who's old and he's tired and he's weary under the burden of serving, perhaps. He's raised two sons that have no regard for the Lord and who despise the priesthood. And he knows those sons are going to die. He knows his family is going to be cut off from the priesthood. Therefore, he's living out the remaining of his days with this burden of knowing all that's coming for his family and that he can do nothing about it at this point. So therefore, if you think about this man in a pitiful sense, the only blessing that's left in Eli's life at this point is a young man who would have been entrusted to him by a woman that now served the Lord with the right heart, cared for the tabernacle along with him. And in his last few years, he was going to have the company of this young boy that was the, probably the only ray of hope in his whole life at this point. And this boy now becomes a source of pain 
not for who he is or for what he does, but for what the Lord says through him, because Samuel is now the one to tell Eli that he's going to truly lose everything he has. So the one joy in his life now becomes the source of bad news for him. And that is, frankly, the life of a prophet in a nutshell. They bring the word of the Lord, which is good news to those who love the Lord and serve him obediently. But it is sorrow to those who are far from the Lord. That, in a nutshell, is the job of a prophet. And as it is usually the case here, those who are in power are those who do not know the Lord. Therefore, they're the ones who are always hearing the Lord's word in sorrow. And because they're men in power, they usually have the ability to bring persecution against those who are the ones in the role of being prophets. That's why you see prophets persecuted all the time, because what they say are the things that rulers often don't like to hear. Now, as it goes in Samuel's life, he's spared most of the persecution that's common to other prophets. Later prophets, not so much, of course. But in fact, from Samuel to Christ, the Lord's prophets are increasingly persecuted as they minister to an increasingly apostate people. So Samuel being the first prophet, as the scriptures count him, the martyrdom and the persecution of the prophets just increases as you go through history, almost without exception, because they minister to a people that is more and more stubbornly opposed to God. But for Samuel, the work's just begun. So verse 19 through 21, to finish the chapter, we're told, thus Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. All Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now, it says here Samuel grew to adulthood. The Lord was with him. But then it says something very important. It says that none of Samuel's words failed. Uh, This means that every time the Lord gave Samuel a word to share, the word Samuel spoke came to pass exactly as he said it would. He was, in other words, he was 100 percent right. It says there specifically the Lord never let his words fail. Literally in Hebrew, the, the word fail there is in Hebrew is the words fall to the ground in Hebrew. As the sense here is euphemism, it's a sense of like an arrow being shot at a target. But instead of reaching the target, it falls to the ground. But in this case, it says not. So in other words, the Lord never let Samuel miss the mark. Everything he said hit exactly where it was supposed to. He's 100 percent accurate in his prophecies. Why is this so important? Because this is the biblical test for anyone who calls themselves a prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, Israel is told that the only legitimate prophet is the one who is never wrong. Deuteronomy 18:17, the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But. The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? You see what they're asking? He says, "Okay, anytime you hear from a prophet, you either do everything he says or you're going to die. And then, of course, if you hear from someone who's not truly a prophet, ignore them, they will die. And then he says, of course, you will say in your heart, well, how do we know the difference? I mean, you've got lives on the line here. Maybe we should get some clarity here about when I'm listening to the right guy. Right. And the Lord says, of course, I know you're going to say that. So verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So the point is, if they say something and they're wrong, cross that person off your list of prophets. 
And not just for that revelation or for what they might say in the future, for anything they've ever said. They've never been a prophet. You can reject their word. That's why he says you don't have to fear them. You can safely reject their word without fear that you're going to be in trouble with me because they are not from me. So the Lord anticipates this concern among those in his, in his people that we need to know truly who is a prophet and who isn't. And the Lord says it's not going to be that hard. Perfection is the only standard that they have to meet. And if they cannot meet the standard of perfection, you can ignore them. They're not speaking with my authority. Elsewhere, the Lord says in his word that such a person must be put to death because they were not a prophet at all. Essentially, here's the rule boiled down. The rule is someone is either 100 percent perfect in their pronouncements or else they were always 100 percent a fraud. That's the only two choices. There's no such thing as a prophet who's mostly right. Or I was right up until now and then I lost it. That doesn't happen. No prophet is ever wrong. Today, friends, if you find people who claim to have the gift of prophecy and putting aside any debate over whether such a gift still operates in the church at all, forgetting that for a moment, just apply this test and you'll always be safe. If anyone ever says anything that is not 100% correct every time, then you can safely dismiss them forevermore. Thankfully, we're not under the law, so you don't have to stone them. But you can ignore them. And there are many today who still claim prophecy in the church and being prophets, and that's, that's something that the Lord will sort out. But for our sake, to hear them or to listen to them, if you're inclined to even be interested in such a thing, you can apply this test and you'll always be protected. So Samuel's own testimony to the legitimacy of his office is that he has a perfect record of prediction. And that perfect record spread as news throughout the whole of Israel from Dan, which is the northernmost tribe, to Beersheba, which is the southernmost city. So that means literally everyone knew and accepted his authority as prophet. So given how long the people of Israel had been without a prophet, over 300 years, this is a dramatic development in the history of the nation. It says something about what's about to happen. It, it speaks to the Lord about to move among his people. Because when the Lord steps out of 300, 300 years of virtual silence and provides a prophet, you have to wonder what's coming. What's next? And there were big changes coming. And those changes are foreshadowed by events that take place in the next chapter with the Ark of the Covenant. Next couple of chapters, you may know the story of the Ark getting shuffled around between Philistine cities and causing some very uncomfortable situations among the people. That foreshadows what's coming in the monarchy, which Samuel actually introduces here in verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21, we'll look at more next week because that's actually an introduction into the events of chapter 4. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the story of Samuel's call, the reminder, Father, of the word being preeminent in your in your work in the heart and of the need, Father, for us to um, to hear you and respond so that we may serve you properly. Each of us, Father, by faith, have been called into the relationship we have. We know that. And each of us, Father, have a mission, although perhaps not all of us have a clear understanding of what that mission is. But, Father, you know it and you are more than capable of revealing it. So we must conclude, Father, that our ability to hear is not what it should be. So I ask, Lord, that you would uh, sharpen our, our hearing for that. So that when you call, we don't uh, overlook it. We listen carefully. And that as you direct our steps, Father, we see the pattern and we recognize your work in it. And uh, let us reflect back on Samuel's obedience and his diligence and see, Father, if we can emulate that in our own walk. So that we can please you as he did. We thank you, Lord, for our little study. And we ask, Lord, that it would continue. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.